Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and you're getting me this week driving in a car, um, well, in my truck for a couple of hours because I had to drop off my daughter at one camp. My son flew out this morning at 4.30 to another camp. Well, my daughter's with her friends, I wouldn't say at a camp, but up at a lake in Northern California, and my son flew out to Woodward, Pennsylvania, where he's in skateboarding camp all week, his third of the summer. So, And now I have a five-hour drive back to San Francisco from Northern California, way up in Northern California. But the good thing is it allows me some uninterrupted time to talk on the podcast, to share some observations of this last week where I thought I was recovered from an Ironman, and go into some updates with regards to athletes this week that have had really um, a fun, not a fun, an interesting week with regards to their events they're doing. I'm talking on a Sunday afternoon here. So welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. For those of you that are familiar with it, as you know, I do a lot of talk here on ultra-endurance training, mindset, nutrition, fueling, balancing it with the rest of our lives. Because if you think of it, anything ultra-endurance is going to take some hours out of our week. For some, it takes a lot of hours out of our week, and for others, less. Um, Whether it's your events and adventures that you're looking to do, or just because you only have that much to give. And so... A lot of what we talk about on the Weekly Word podcast is how to sort of maximize the limited training time that we all have with regards to that we went pro in something other than the sports we're training in ultra endurance. And as well as being able to do this for a long period of time, the advantage in ultra endurance sports is that the longer you do it, the more successful you have a chance to be. You can avoid injuries, you can gain more knowledge, you can prepare your training smarter, better, more gradual, more substantial, build a better foundation. And in order to remain in the sport for a while and have longevity and really achieve the adventures that you want to achieve, well, that requires balance and that requires still having a career and a job, that requires still having a family and taking care of kids and activities and so forth. And so a lot of what I try to wrap all this around is the balance of what I always call the three-legged stool, work, training, and of course family and personal life and obligations. Now, of course, there's more legs to a variety of everybody's stools, but I feel if we can keep those three in balance, we feel more empowered and ready to take on the other stools, uh, legs of stools that might come up. And of course, most of the time, our days fall into those three categories if we're doing ultra-endurance sports, that it has such a big piece of taking over one full leg of the three-legged stool. So uh, that's the Weekly Word Podcast. And for those of you that are new, welcome after that um, short introduction. I hope the sound is okay, Um, again, since I'm driving at about uh, 80 miles an hour here through Northern California, and it is very, very cloudy, and not because of the rain, uh, because of the weather, but because of the large amounts of wildfires we have, and so there's this gray, orangish tint 
over all of California or Northern California here, and it's sort of weird. It's 95 degrees out, but the sun is nowhere to be seen because it's above this really thick cloud of all the forest fires that we have out there. And I'm going to go off on a side note here for a moment, and that is, um, you know, ultra endurance. Talk about ultra endurance. Those firefighters that are out there for 15, 16, 17 hours a day, two weeks at a time, 10 to 16 days at a time on their shifts, maybe even longer, and the equipment that they're wearing, um, the air that they're breathing, the temperatures that they're dealing with, and then throw in the physical labor and the weight that they're carrying while they're doing hard, hard work in some of these locations all around the United States, but definitely a lot around the West and in California. And those guys are true ultra-endurance athletes. To do a 16-hour day of hard manual labor in a hot fire suit carrying heavy, heavy equipment in those temperatures and doing it with limited oxygen or just being exhausted and then guess what? Do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And no, they don't have the perfect nutrition access at the camps where they're sleeping in cots and tents and trying to get the rest they can before they wake up the next day in order to do the event. In their case, fight a fire that puts their life at risk every day. And so I know this isn't on the true training path of ultra endurance, but what we talk about is ultra endurance and those guys are true ultra endurance athletes. And for them to do it for weeks, weeks on end, and not just for a month, not just for two, three weeks of summer, but these guys are now, and girls, I'm sorry, and girls are also doing it for four or five months for a summer. And I have a tremendous amount of respect. I'm in a, in, a, in a lot of awe of their ability, their stamina, their perseverance, and what they're willing to sacrifice for places that they go, for our forests, for our structures, for where they don't even live, right? They're just doing their job in a far off place from away from their homes and their communities and their loved ones and their families and doing what they do. So if it takes me three or five minutes on this podcast to thank them and highlight what kind of incredible work they do and how they truly are ultra endurance athletes, well, I hope you can bear with me and the next time you see or hear or know or can email or text or direct message or whatever all the forms of communication are, a firefighter, especially one that is fighting forest fires, please do because those guys, they have my utmost respect and my utmost um, um, uh, interest with regards to how they are such incredible athletes and their mindset and their strength to wake up every day and take their tired, achy bodies. It's not like you can train for this. It's not like you can train for 16-hour days, um, sleeping eight hours. And remember, they're not sleeping in those eight hours. They're, they're also doing their personal stuff. They're showering. They're eating. And then, you know, getting a few hours of sleep and then, boom, right back into the, onto the, to the shift and the work that they're doing. So... Thank you for letting me uh, say that and thank you to our 
amazing, amazing athletes and endurance athletes called firefighters. Another busy weekend of athletes racing are, in this case, doing their ultra endurance events. Um, one of them being Ultraman Canada, which is um, a weekend event. Um, when you think of it for Canada, it starts on a Saturday and it goes Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And so today on Saturday, a uh, Sunday afternoon, he's completed the uh, 10K six mile swim and the 90 mile bike. Day one went really well. And we just talked briefly with regards to day two and his 171 mile bike. And I'm glad to hear that his legs and his body felt really good for the last 30, 40 kilometers of his um, 171 mile bike. So I think that's like a 250 mile uh, kilometer bike ride or 200 and a little bit more than that. So, um, but yeah, he uh, is moving right along, currently in fourth place. And we're going to have a, a, a specific strategy for tomorrow with regards to the run, hoping that his back half of the marathon is where he feels best, just like he did today with regards to cycling. The interesting thing, of course, as you all know, with me coaching a variety of Ultraman athletes over the years, probably this is number seven or eight, um, is that I'm a big believer of your ability not only to withstand the first day, day and a half, and then start making your push, but also because the strategy is so different and the training is so different from triathlon, I find that many times we can take advantage of that aspect given that um, many former triathletes try to do Ultraman and, and approach it with the same training as well as with the same mindset of how they'll be biking uh, later in the event or running. So that'll be fun to observe his double marathon, his 52-mile run tomorrow. And then uh, we had an, a first-time Ironman finisher today in Ironman Maastricht over in Europe. And um, despite her being worried that she would uh, swim within the cutoff and not wanting to take too long and being didn't want to be too conservative on the swim. She still swam a 134 Ironman swim, which gives her a good 45 minutes or 40 minutes before the cutoff was going to happen. So that worked out great, and I'm proud of her. Um, she had a solid bike, and then she's had some run injuries and some hip issues over the last few weeks and still persevered to get through her first Ironman, and hopefully she's truly enjoying her first Ironman through and through, and uh, she did it in just under 15 hours in 14.59. So, which brings up an interesting um, point here too, is a lot of newer athletes ask me what their race plan might be like with regards to their first event or their first adventure or first organized structured uh, event, let's say an Ironman, half Ironman, a marathon, or even... Um, 50Ks, 50 miles, and stuff like that. 100 miles is always a different animal, so I won't um, add that to it. But for me, it's very important that the athlete has an opportunity to really enjoy their first event and not go through it with too much structure and too much head down and too much calculation and too much focus because, you know, for lack of a better description or use of words, you never forget your first. And 
Um, for that to just be on feel and to enjoy it and to sort of fail a little bit, but then also have the, um, the, the, the sensation of feeling really good and really fit and alive and endurance is paying off well, all those things, if that should be part of everybody's first ultra endurance event. And so I'm quite careful with their first race plan and just more with some heart rate guidance and some general fueling and some um, hydration advice, but I don't like to get too structured. So I received that question the other day. And then the other aspect of newer Ironman folks is, as you heard, 15, 16, 17 hour Ironman finishers or, you know, um, what did I have the other day? Uh, not the other day, a couple months ago, um, somebody who did their first uh, 50 miler in 14 or 15 hours, again, just barely making the cutoff. The answer there is more for the question, which is, do I only work with elite athletes or those that have a lot of experience or these grand um, goals? No, that's not the case at all. Um, this is about getting as many of you excited and into the healthy lifestyle of ultra endurance and if we need to do a few events prior leading up to that to make you um, understand and um, listen to your body and understand the endurance training and all the things that happen with it with regards to a schedule and managing it and recovery and fueling and hydrating not only during but in between your workouts and so forth. The more we can get familiar with that, the more you'll be able to balance it, the more you'll be able to join this huge community of athletes that just have a great endurance platform to then take on any adventure that they're looking to take part in. For example, um, whether that's an Ironman, whether that's a 50-mile run, a 100-mile run, whether that's Ultraman, whether that's marathon swims, whether that's bike rides across the country, um, like my boy Eric Burns is currently doing and uh, as he's swimming and biking and running his way from San Francisco to New York yes and uh, check him out if you get a chance he's doing it all for a cause and a charity Eric Burns B-Y-R-N-E-S a former Major League Baseball player who's you know just got a ton of energy for this and really is passionate about ultra endurance and he's one of those perfect examples of people I talk about that once you get this taste of what your body can do and experience and live and breathe and feel alive and connect to and truly going back to this raw self of who we are we are ultra endurance athletes as a species that's sort of how we hunted how we um, persevered way back 60,000 years ago, go read Born to Run. Not necessarily agree with all the, the running aspect, but sort of what we were as hunter-gatherers, which is endurance athletes. So we're hardwired for that. Below the surface, there's an ultra-endurance athlete in all of you. So in the intro, I was alluding a little bit to the fact that I thought I was recovered from Ironman. And I must say, you know, three days after an Ironman, I felt pretty good. I uh, taught my cycling class. I started pretty easy, but, um, and then did some work on the last half of the class. And I was like, oh, I'm recovering pretty well. I felt pretty good on Thursday's swim um, and Friday swim. And then Saturday, I attempted a swim run because I am getting ready for this thing called Attilo. And uh, 
I felt decent on the swim, not great, but I could already sense, man, you are pretty tired, Chris. And then I tried to run a trail run, actually with my Attilo partner. And uh, the first 30 minutes, I would say went okay, but the soreness and achiness and flat legs and fatigue in my legs as of about 35 minutes was incredible. Um, I feel energetic and good and fully recovered on the surface in my day-to-day activities, but asking my body to run well, run on trails, absorb impact of downhills and so forth, it was just not ready for it. And I uh, took my son to skate lessons with his coach later on that morning and had some time in the afternoon with my daughter and I was just wrecked. And even my kids said to me like, dude, are you okay? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? All you did was a little bit of working out this morning because they know that usually I'm fine or usually if I do something big, it wouldn't, you know, I would have a different reaction. But this, I was just mentally out of it. I was physically out of it. I was sleepy. I was couldn't really snap out of it. So a good reminder that um, no matter what, even that I didn't dig that deep at Ironman last Sunday, that it does still take a lot out of you and you really have to listen to your body. And everybody has a different timeline with recovery towards an Ironman. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk about today. And that is understanding that just because you feel fine um, doesn't mean you're ready to dig deep yet. And in all the years I've been coaching, what is now 20 years of coaching ultra endurance athletes, um, I've found that everybody responds so differently. Some people are ready to bounce back after two, three weeks. Others, they're not back to their normal self until about six weeks. And so it's this, this um, observation and uh, interplay between athlete and coach to determine how they're feeling, how far they're getting into the workout before they run out of energy or motivation or mindset prep with regards to staying engaged in the workout. And what I mean by that is they might want to, but their body might not allow them. They might, their body might allow them, but they might be mentally spent. And then lastly, it might be a mindset thing with regards to that body is okay, mind is okay, but they feel that they should be spending more time still with family or catching up on life or doing the things that they need to do after an Ironman because they spent so much time in the weeks prior to Ironman focusing on the event and the adventure. So that applies to any ultra endurance event. A lot of us come home, a lot of you come home, come back from it, and there's this sort of lull um, for a few days um, after the initial recovery day. So of course the first three, four, five, six days you feel totally fine that you're not doing anything or you're, um, you're actually happy to not do anything and catch up on life and have no hours being pulled out of your days. But then what you'll notice is that you start itching to get the sensation and the feelings and the dopamine hit that we seem to get from those daily training bouts that we're missing now and we're starting to get a little cranky and a little itchy and getting ready to train again and so that's what I talk about with mindset 
Just because you're physically ready and mentally ready to return to training, it might not be the best use of your long-term time. And like I said in the intro, we want to maximize the limited training time we have. And if it's not yet time for you to return fully engaged into training, and you should take a few more days off, um, I would always, always recommend taking more days off. The fitness, I always say, comes back quickly. The fitness we can rebuild quickly. The um, desire and focus to train usually comes back quickly because we just had a good result or we feel good after the, the event or adventure or <clears throat> um, endurance adventure we did. Oh, excuse me, I have something in my throat. And then we want to jump back in. And so be careful, be observant with your family, with your career and your body that it's time to return again. Now, I would say nothing less than two weeks. Even my next week will be pretty light. I'll do frequent training, but not any type of intense training. And by frequent training, I mean frequent short workouts. I'll swim multiple two to 3,000 workouts this week. I'll do multiple 30 to 45 minute runs, but nothing longer that will again tax the body. And I got a harsh reminder of that the other day. The other thing I've noticed with athletes is they're also way too gung-ho to return after a half Ironman, an Ironman, a 50K, a 50-miler. Most don't return too quickly after a 100-miler. <laughs> but um, And then I actually question, because they feel so good or because they are ready to dive into serious workouts too quickly, that I wonder what their effort was like in the race, in the event, in the the adventure they just took on. Now, of course, there's adventures we take on that are just long, but there's no desired result or placing or pace or finish line, right? So, of course, there the effort might be lighter, but usually those adventures are long enough that the athlete afterwards takes a week or two or even a month to sort of get their house back in order, for lack of a better description. But when it's a 70.3, when it's a competitive 50K, when it's something that they're looking to build on towards their 100 miler or towards their 50 miler or towards an Ironman or even from an Ironman, if the athlete is too gung-ho and doesn't feel tired enough after the event, well, then I would absolutely push back and say, well, you should you, clearly something is showing me that you didn't go hard enough. And it's important to race races hard, fast, with a lot of dig and a lot of intensity. Many people seem to have, many athletes, excuse me, not people, I hate to use that term, it seems so general and just stereotyping. Um, many athletes seem to have this approach or a mindset with regards to racing that you can just do it easy and get through it. Oh, it's just a training day. But racing as I've talked before on previous podcast episodes, is such an important component in our training that 
we would never want to miss an opportunity to go our best, our best that day, our best to overcome what our body is telling us that day, our best to practice nutrition and hydration, our best for visualization, our best for self-talk and getting ourselves out of the valleys or the, the, the emotions that we feel during our racing the best in order to practice pacing, our best to practice body scanning, and all the details that come with racing. And we don't get to practice that enough in our sport of ultra endurance because too often the recovery and the logistics for it require um, too much. But when we do have an opportunity to race, I always tell my athletes, race your best for that day. Even if it was a good training week coming in and you are fatigued and you are flat, we'll show and teach your body to flip that switch, to race hard, to still overcome, to still persevere and push through, to not listen to the mind or the body and just do what you had desired and and, and, and written out or planned to do. And if you close your eyes before a tired so-called training race, well, and you have a plan and a desired outcome, and then flipping that switch and actually doing it and executing it and overcoming the negative self-talk or just go easy or don't worry about it, it's just a training race, that's a huge, huge tool to have in your toolbox. That's a huge thing to have when in your A race, when you really want to grow and break through to the next level of competing and being the athlete that you want to be, it's a huge piece to have in your arsenal so that you can, you know, I'm racing tomorrow, it's an A race, I've been over able to overcome all season, all year, or all those training days, all those training races as they're supposedly called, and I know it'll be there tomorrow. Why? Because I know I can flip that switch. I flipped it when I'm tired and I'm gonna flip it tomorrow when I'm fresh. And so post races, whether it's listening to your body and the recovery, but also listening to, wait a moment, did I race hard enough is something you really wanna consider as you evaluate who you are as an athlete and who you wanna be as an athlete. And I got a few emails this week from Santa Rosa racers and racers um, all around, rarely Ironman racers or 100 mile racers, where they were ready to go and wanted to get on their training after you know a Saturday race and get after it on Monday. And usually I tell all my athletes, you know what, this week, post the 70.3, is your choice of workouts. Choose whatever you're in the mood for that day, whatever discipline, and then go out and do that. But do it easy and just enjoy yourself this week. Let go. It's fine. But if there's too much push there, that means I will um, question if the athlete went hard enough. So I think you understand, all of you, what I'm trying to convey with the ability to race hard as well as to recover well. All righty, back out of the car and at home and on a different day and recording more podcast topics. This one being how surprised I am, how many athletes, whether they're my athletes or not, those that I just talked to in general conversation, 
or in my classes or at swim practices and so forth, that go out and hire or work with other specialists in other fields that have no <laughs> familiarity with ultra endurance or endurance sports. For example, hiring a nutritionist that might have, that might not might, that doesn't have any experience with doing Ironman or 100 mile runs or 50 mile runs or ultra endurance endeavors in the first place. Or hiring a strength coach that has no familiarity with regards to ultra endurance racing and adventures. Or hiring, you know, uh, a variety of different specialists, a cycling coach, a running coach, drills, so forth, a swim coach that doesn't have the familiarity to what you are looking to do. It's quite surprising. Um, I doubt you would take your car to a mechanic that specializes in large trucks. Still an engine, sure, but the engine of a large truck, a commercial truck, is different than your car or that you wouldn't go to a cooking class that specializes in Indian food when you're looking to learn how to cook for your family here in the United States. Still cooking, still food, still ingredients, but something a little different. So in general, ask those extra questions. There's plenty of nutritionists. There's plenty of coaches. There's plenty of strength coaches, there's plenty of specialists out there that have a lot of familiarity, have done Ironman, have done 100 mile runs, have done 50 mile runs, have done marathon swims, have done Ultraman, have done, you know, multi-stage adventure races or specific runs or specific bikes and so forth. The demands on your body are completely different. So, Please understand that and find that. It takes just a little bit extra research, but they are out there and they are happy to help you specific to what they can truly contribute knowledge and value add for you for basically the same rate that you're paying the person who is not familiar with what you are doing. And it is never a scenario of, well, you know, your stomach is the same, the engine is the same, the muscles are the same. No, that's not how it works. We're all already so individual with this entire process to then add that component to it would be sort of crazy. So my two cents on that. Now, what I'm not saying is that those nutritionists or those specialists or those strength coaches aren't fully capable of helping you and making you better prepared or fueling you or improving your technique towards your ultra endurance events. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying is they all learn the same thing. They all go to school for the same thing. They all apply based off their own knowledge from what they've learned and their life experiences, right? That's how mastery, that's how learning, that's how knowledge works. You, you study the topic you apply it along with your own experiences and your own observations and your own growth, and then you share that information. Now, you guys can obviously tell where I'm going with this. If you're missing that key component of which your subject matter, this in this case you, the athlete, is looking to um, 
get a desired outcome, it's sort of critical that that is part of the experiences. Again, doesn't mean that it can't be possible. Some of the best coaches in the world have never done a triathlon. Some of the best um, strength coaches in the world have never played whatever, football or whatever whatever the strength is. I get that. And that's fully possible. But those guys rise to the top either way, those guys and girls. And if I were looking for somebody, or if I were looking for input or advice or subject matter expertise like this, then I would also want to know that they've gone through the trials and tribulations of an ultra endurance event because those do things on your body that is not comparable to most anything we do in the world. And um, their failure, their overcoming, and they're willing to dive deeper into the topic because they failed is exactly what I want in my subject matter experts, right? I can open a book myself. I can um, talk to people and gain the knowledge myself, but their failures, they're willing to dive deep into that knowledge and why it went wrong. Now we're talking, I want you to help me. So just just a little bit more background on that um, topic. I just received another interesting email, uh, I guess, uh, of a lot of athletes are getting ready for age group nationals and the water in Cleveland, I believe, is pretty warm. I think it's 76 degrees now as of this weekend, a week out and um, with temperatures typically high this first, second week of August, it could easily um, possibly rise to 78, at which point it would be wetsuit illegal. Now the question is, or the, the comment that has come up, I'm nervous I've never swam in open water without a wetsuit. Well, okay, I understand that, but I'm confused as to what makes open water, fresh water, different than pool water. Do we suddenly sink? Do we suddenly not know how to feel the water or swim? Did we mislearn everything? Does our fitness of thousands and thousands and thousands of yards each week go away because we're no longer wearing a wetsuit? I'm confused by um, that question. Um, I had an athlete this weekend who raced in Maastricht and she, again, like I think I mentioned earlier, she did phenomenal on the swim, um, 40 minutes faster than she expected. And that was without a wetsuit. That swim was wetsuit illegal. And she was like, I was fine. Nothing happened. It was exactly the same sensation. I guess that's why we did all the yards and meters, in her case, in the pool that we did. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're fully capable of swimming faster than you do in the pool in an open water swim with less flip turns and sort of more of a chugging current pulling you along effect, as well as good sight lines, as well as a rhythm, as well as good pull and power and effort and rested and tapered and all that and desire and push and willing to dig deep and question your effort because you're going that hard. It's Olympic distance, all those things. So no, no, don't let yourself be distracted. Don't allow um, negativity or questions to arise based off something that makes no sense. That's a reaction to something that you have full control over. Wait a moment. I swim in water. I practice in my pool. My pool is water. This is water. 
So everything should be the same. Of course, the, your clothing clothing choices might change or, you know, little things like that. But that's easily adjustable. That has nothing to do with your racing, has nothing to do with your desired outcome. Salt water is a little different, um, A, because of the buoyancy of salt water. And then often salt water is we're talking about some waves, currents, uh, chop, which chop off, of course, available on bigger lakes and so forth. But again, it's water. You're fully capable of doing the swim distance because you've done it in training a lot. Like my athletes swim typically no less than 3,000 yards and frequently, I would say weekly, if not multiple times a month, over 4,000 yards. So getting ready for a Olympic distance swim, which is 1,500 meters, I think they're plenty fine. Getting ready for a half Ironman swim of 2,120 yards, I think they're fine. And for an Ironman swim of 4,240 yards, I think they're fine too. So let's focus on things that do require our attention. But wetsuit or not wetsuit, eh, that's not really part of your energy. I'm once again reading a lot of race plans. It's beginning of August and there's a lot going on. So a lot of athletes send me a variety of different race plans as well as desired outcomes. For some, I have them go through different types of exercises. Some I would like to see some sort of negative visualization where they go through worst case scenarios because many of the athletes out there struggle in different ways with regards to how to not worry or how to not allow the worry to impact their performance. And so going through a negative visualization exercise really often helps with regards to um, getting some of the worries out there, verbalizing them, communicating them, and recognizing that it's not going to be that bad. Or even if that does come to fruition, our worst worries, our worst fears, um, how there's oftentimes still plenty of outcomes or solutions or remainder of race real estate to still have a very effective and successful day. But one thing I do come across that I want, the reason I'm bringing this up is how often I see race plans where athletes seem to think that in an endurance event, not necessarily even ultra endurance, but in an endurance event, that they're able to negative split or increase the pace late in their um, race or in their adventure or in their event. In this case, I'm looking at one from a trail marathon. So we're talking 42 kilometers on trails. And I don't know how it works um, for... Well, I do know how it works, but maybe there are exceptions to the rule, which I have yet to see. But for athletes truly to pick it up, it needs to be a downhill second half of the race. It's just natural that two, three hours into any type of event, our ability to go faster, even though we started easier, is very, 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 very unlikely. And so... If anything, I would describe the sensations and the approach and the plan more as starting easy and increasing the effort 
if that's sort of the approach that many athletes want to take. But have no expectation that just because the effort increases, the pace will decrease. If anything, as many of you heard of you of you have heard me say many times over the years and in 80 of these podcasts basically that you know our goal is to slow, slow down the least whether it's versus our competitors or versus our own self to prevent ourselves from slowing down too much so we want to start at a pace that's reasonable and reasonable is defined by the fact that it is reasonable if it allowed us to slow down less later on in the endurance event. Now, this doesn't need to be a single sport. This could be a multi-sport. But again, it's all relative to the effort and relative to what we're capable of and how much we're going slower to versus what we're capable of, that delta, that differential. And so as you're contemplating race plans and your next race and your next event and your next adventure and how you want to get through it, um, to the best of your ability, and many cases, the best of your ability is pacing it like that, starting easy and trying to increase the effort once you're settled into the event, into the day, the body recognizes the, 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 the strategy as well as the energy that you're putting forth and finds that homeostasis, which means it wants to be where it's, it has leveled off to be, then that works for many people, but do not expect an increased pace because that will only set you up for disappointment and um, I wouldn't say failure, but just negative energy because you're seeing that you are not um, achieving what you had visualized or committed to or contemplated prior to achieving. And you don't want that. You're already doing something pretty remarkable, pretty awesome, something that you've trained for, something that brings you joy. And then you're limiting it and that joy by most likely not achieving that negative split, that increased pace, um, that increased speed late in the event or on the second half of the event. So keep that in mind as you write out your plans as you visualize your racing and think of it more in regards to sensations and feel and how you want your body to work versus a pace or a speed or a defined um, outcome. I had some questions that came out of last week's Ironman Canada race recap. I guess there's some things in there that also I didn't realize how helpful they are in sharing, but also that many had some more thoughts on. And I received some nice feedback as well as emails and direct messages due to them. So I thank you for that. So let's dive into it a little bit. One of the questions I received was um, regarding leg durability and your ability to build second half run fitness. Now, this is obviously a um, deeper question because it requires, you know, a long-term approach to uh, durability on pavement to maintain the speed, the tempo, the turnover, very important here, the cadence late in your running. Um, and so, of course, years of doing ultras and 100 mile runs and 50 mile runs and 50k runs and then Attilo 
which is also 40 miles of running and, you know, a couple dozen <laughs> Ironmans, um, I have built up leg durability. But as many of you had heard last week, I still ran out of fitness late in the run. And so what does that mean? In conjunction with leg durability, that means at some point, no matter how much you focus on form, footwork, posture, and turnover, cadence, your legs still fatigue enough that you can't maintain those four ingredients to maintaining a good run pace or keeping yourself from falling off too far from the pace. Now, last week, I was able to maintain that effectively and shut the sensations and the feelings and the fatigue um, and the low energy out of my mind until about 24 miles. 22 miles is where I started noticing it. Um, as of 24, I was basically done. I could have stopped right there and been happy. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But that being said, that's what I would call running out of fitness. At some point, you can't force the technique, the light feet, the posture, the footwork, the form, and so forth, and the cadence to still keep going because you haven't trained the miles to do that beyond you know, 16, 18, going on 20-mile runs. That is sort of part of the formula there. Um, now, you can simulate that differently in training with regards to how fatigued you are off of a bike. And many of my athletes know I like to do that on energy expenditure based off of past Ironman um, ride files. And uh, it's very specific. So it's something I really enjoy to put the athlete through the same experience as what an Ironman is. But it also really requires some uh, preparedness with regards to recovery after that um, and, and the ability to back off the training for a couple of days because those workouts are really, they go really deep. Um, the other one I really like for leg durability and run durability especially is uh, late in the season. Um, I would say six weeks out to two weeks out even. Um, in that window, that four-week window, I really like to simulate what I call the Dave Scott, something that he used to do. And I've modified and done with a lot of athletes as well as other coaches have done. I've gotten emails and um, um, notes from other coaches as well that they do it or they were asking me how to do it similarly. And basically is that you rotate through 20 or 25 miles of cycling <clears throat> and then you run five miles and you do 25 miles of cycling, then you run four miles then you do 25 miles of cycling, then you run three miles. And then you do 25 miles cycling and you do two miles of running. And what happens there is you can quickly see your switch of muscle groups and getting on and off the bike fatigues your body in a completely different way. And it really gets you into a place where by the third rotation, you're, you're, you're pretty out there with regards to fatigue, with regards to being drained of energy, with regards to managing your hydration and your fueling, with regards to understanding your pacing and your wattages on the bike or your heart rates on the bike or your desired pace on the bike, which as you all know, I'm not a fan of pace on the bike. But 
So that's another way because that quickly builds up where we at 14 miles of running off of a 100 mile bike that's broken up because you're getting off the bike and running five, you're getting off the bike and running four. And what becomes harder there is coming off of a four mile run at Ironman pace is getting back on your bike and biking 25 miles. It, it just saps you. <clears throat> and it's actually very similar to the swim run experience, which in the meantime, if I were to get ready for an Ironman get again at a very high level, let's say in Kona, I would surely simulate more of a swim run scenario as well. Because again, it just gets you further into the fatigued state without the breakdown. And therefore, you can mess with different efforts and paces. And again, mental strength in order to late in your training day, as well as late in your Ironman day, late in your adventure or endurance or ultra endurance event day, to still keep it together mentally. And in general, the harder part is saving your mental energy throughout your event to truly apply it when it's needed. And when you really can't lean on other things in order to get you to maintain the pace, the feel of continuing to move to the finish line to the end of your event as efficiently, but also as effectively as possible. And effectively is a big word there because that could tie into not slowing down as much as we talked about. That means effectively with regards to form, posture, footwork, cadence, and so forth with regards to, and especially a marathon swimming, to still maintaining some sort of pressure on the water come loop four of a 10K swim where you know your stroke gets short, so you need to find a way to lengthen out your stroke again and get that distance per stroke because otherwise you will run out of strokes. Um, and that's a different um, approach with regards to the 10K swimmers that I've worked with in the past. But um, in general, Leg durability is absolutely that. Your ability to late in your run, late in your event to still have form, footwork, posture, technique, and for sure cadence, leg speed, all still maintained. Um, are there other things I can do to improve leg durability? I mean, we know that strength and just overall fitness carries a huge aspect of that. Um, durability, I believe, comes through good maintenance work in the winter, which might mean some cross training, whether it's from cycling standpoint, or for those of you in the colder locations, skate skiing, good skiing work, good skinning work, just keeping your legs fully throttled, not from an intensity perspective, but from truly applying stress to the muscle groups without the load, the pounding of 40 times your body weight in the running scenario on pavement. So skiing, skate skiing, cross country and classic, um, skinning, climbing mountains, trail running, um, things of that nature will go a long way with regards to that. And um, that's why the spring or winter bigger trail runs or bigger winter adventures have a interesting effect on your run speed, uh, that durability, excuse me, not run speed, durability in your summer. I say that with specificity because 
I've worked with a lot of athletes as well as been through these cycles myself a few times. And every single time, I would think that the speed from trail running, from ultra trail running, would translate to easy speed on pavement in an Ironman. It has not come out that way. The only time that worked was when I did a 100-mile run in February and did Ironman Texas in um, April. And I quickly transitioned to track work exclusively in order to not work on any type of endurance because I obviously had that with a 100-mile run, but worked 100% on form, footwork, technique, posture, and leg speed. Leg speed being the key driver there in order to... um, what that day was a sub three marathon um, and worked out quite fine as an overall result. But my point there is it has to be very specific. Your switch from trails and winter work to what your truly your outcome needs to be and what the timeline is towards that outcome. In a perfect world, I would take it from the trails, um, maintain some volume, I would say about 75% of my max trail running volume as I was preparing for the event. I would build a 75%, 80% week in to my macro cycle with regards to a pavement time. So let's say I was running 110 miles or 100 miles a week, um, not every week, but a week in my max buildup for the trails. That means I would want to build a 75-mile to 80-mile running week on pavement somewhere in a bigger picture macro cycle on pavement. Obviously, build up to that, not just come off the event and think I can do that because that will spell injury, but gradually build up to that and then come down from that you know, that durability on pavement and then increase the leg speed. So um, that was one of the questions. Another question that um, a lot of athletes actually ask me, and that is this whole solid food versus liquid nutrition and gel only strategy. First off, um, and I think I've answered this on a few uh, previous podcasts, but I will dive into it as briefly as I can in my weekly word way. There's a few things I have to say about that. One, go with what works for you. And if it works for you and you haven't had any GI issues or concerns, continue to go with what works. And eventually it'll come back to you because nutrition and stomach plans never stay the same. So what worked five years ago will not work forever and may not even work for more than five or six years. So that's number one. Um, that's sort of the, I'm not a doctor, I only play one on the internet type of way of saying that. But secondly, is in no other sport do um, we, do athletes combine their food and drink other than triathlon. Pro cyclists don't, pro runners don't, ultra trail runners don't, the, uh, the elite of the elite, um, marathon swimmers don't, even the marathon swimmers that can't touch the boat and stuff like that and have to take in a certain amount of calories. Um, They try to avoid the fluid calories as much as they can. But those ultra endurance athletes and Ironman racers that um, are at the highest level, as well as where I would pull most of it from, most of the knowledge comes from pro cycling and uh, pro runners, they do not combine their calories in their bottles. They eat their foods 
and they drink their drinks. They don't try to ask their body, ask in this case, their stomach to do both, right? Remember, our stomach and the blood is already going to the working muscles. Now you add fluids and calories into that mix, and now you're asking the stomach to do extra work um, because you don't usually, I mean, if we grew up on a diet of fluid calories, our body is adjusted to it. You do it in training, you do it in resting, you do it under high stress situations all the time. I would entertain it completely differently. But because 95% of our life, if not 99.5% of our life, we eat our foods and drink our drinks, we don't walk around with insured cans and um, bottles filled with CarboPro as our meals. Our body is conditioned and prepared to work through its stomach and calories in a certain way. So why do it different for training? Eat our foods, drink our drink. Now electrolytes are different. They get absorbed differently with the water and so forth, but not calories. And so the other aspect of that is that um, I like foods with sustenance and um, long-lasting uh, energy in them. By having a solid breakfast with solids, as well as early on the bike, in my case, having cliff bars, I know those oats, and I know that the, the toast from this morning, and I know the foods that I ate will have a slow-burning, long-lasting effect. And don't get me wrong, as you saw, I do take the gels and chews. And I do have a splash of Gatorade. And I do have some perform, uh, precision hydration electrolyte drinks. Of course, that's part of the, the formula. But I try to avoid them as long as I'm possible. And because I've created a base of things in my stomach that allow it to absorb as a platform, as a sponge, as some sort of foundation, the astronaut food, as I call it, gels and chews and those drinks, I, um, I feel better by having pushed off, waited, delayed the onset of that astronaut, of that sugar food, of that pure sugar hit of calories as long as possible. I want something long lasting. I want something slow burning. And to me, and I'm no expert nutritionist, but I'm uh, my partner is one. <laughs> so I, I'd like to say that I do pay attention. Um, that the slow burning, more um, substantial calories are the ones that are going to provide me with slower burning, longer lasting energy throughout the day and help ensure that the GI issues and the stomach issues stay at bay. Um, Again, I don't think I have an iron stomach. I used to think that. I used to walk around in my confident uh, little world of triathlon thinking I had an a iron stomach and I can eat anything. And then I learned the hard way that I don't. <laughs> and then I started paying more attention. And with that, um, it's, it's been a growth and a progression that has changed. Uh, it used to be that I was able to do some of the the more caloric dense bottles, but then that didn't make sense to me. And eventually the stomach with higher intensities and higher demands and nerves, right? Remember, keep in mind, we have a nervous stomach too, um, that I got away from that and understood why and so forth. But also um, with that, I'm surprised that I was able to get through a breakfast, get through a morning coffee, 
get through a thousand calories or 1200 calories for breakfast, get through a swim, a race, a whole day without using the porta potty once. Um, which means to me, again, I'm not trying to project any type of expertise, but for me, that seemed to have highlighted that what I ate was solid and substantial and slow burning enough that it didn't need to be cleared by my stomach and my digestive system quite as immediate as some of the sugary, high concentrated carbo um, type of um, products, which have a great short term effect, but I'm not sure how they work through your digestive tract and how they work on your gut and how they work on your um, GI um, later on in a race, right? Where, you know, a porta potty here and a porta potty there, that nothing becomes more frustrating than that in your um, events. So, that is why I do what I do with regards to the solids and the fluids and staying away from it. I'm just not a believer in going against 100,000 years of our DNA of eating our food and drinking our drink and not combining the two. And then I get out of the bubble, the cocoon of our sport and see that no other sport does it. And then I wonder, well, how come we seem to think we have it figured out more? Sure, we run off the bike in triathlon. That makes sense to me, but it still doesn't mean we can't um, get down calories without um, with, with, with always doing gels, let's say, from the first mile of the bike. I understand that on the run we need to do gels. We're that far into the day. We've got a sloshy stomach or we're just bouncing around and stuff like that. Different story and so forth. But I try to recommend to everybody as well as apply myself holding off the astronaut food, the sugary injections of a short term boost as long as I can. And gels and chews, um, gels are the last resort, chews are sort of in between waffles and bars are preferred as long as I can. And uh, yeah, that's why. So I received a great question and I wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the answer. Or maybe it won't be that deep of a dive, but I thought it was a good question to share as well as some of the concepts that come with it. I just signed up for my second 50K, never thought I would do it. My issue is that I have to work out, run in the evening so my husband can work out in the mornings. Um, in this case, this person has some young children, and um, so somebody has to be there for the um, two-year-old that happens to be awake in the family at that time, which happens, two-year-olds, my two-year-old would wake up that early as well. So um, the problem is I don't get to eat until about 9 to 10 p.m., which is absolutely terrible for me. I can't eat too much before my run because there aren't many bathrooms on any of my routes. Big dilemma, I agree. I have f food ready for when I come back, but by the time I come back, I don't feel like eating anymore, and most of the time, I end up going to bed with only a shake. So this is a great question because it's true. These are the examples and these are the dilemmas we run into as full-time working athletes with a family as well as a job and so forth. So 
you know, throw into it uh, a soft spot for me. Life of a dual military full-time working student traveling parents. <laughs> so you already had me at military. So anyhow, so as we approach this evening um, training question, let's keep it simpler and throw out some options. The first would be going purely European. And European means you eat your main course, you eat your main meal, you eat your biggest meal, your warm meal, not a sandwich, not a salad, at lunch. So that that way you have plenty of time to absorb the calories, you get all your nutritional benefits of your biggest meal. In Europe, well, it's not that case anymore, but it used to be up until probably about 15, 20 years ago, back until when, when I still lived there, is that you ate your main meal at lunch and you ate a lighter dinner so that you could sleep better. You sleep with less calories in your stomach. You sleep with a lighter meal in your stomach at night. A, it helps you sleep better, but B, it's also better for your body and your digestion and your metabolism not to have a heavy meal in you right before you lay down and go to sleep. Now, of course, there was still the aspect of taking an evening walk and so forth, but that's what I'm tying into here. One of the options to consider would be to think of it as, all right, I'm going to have my main meal, my most nutritious, my biggest, my calorie dense, my warm meal for the day at lunch, which takes some planning because we don't want to blow the budget because every time having a $25 lunch would not be very smart or feasible either way. But some planning and some prep that I understand, and many, many, many have to go through this. They prep their meals for the week prior and so forth. But then throw in that a it's easier to have that shake or a light sandwich or something light in the evening. Now, I realize in this case you're still going to bed on a somewhat light, empty stomach, and that's not ideal, but... If you're getting up at 5.30, all you've really created since your workout plus your lack of calories, not no calories, a lack of calories, is created a little bit of a fasting situation. If you're training at 6 p.m. and let's say till 9 p.m. or 7 p.m. until 9 or 10 p.m., Let's say the window of fasting starts at 6 and ends at 6. It's a simple 12-hour fast, which should be okay and is not that unhealthy for the body. If you're doing that five nights a week slash four nights a week technically because Sunday you're not doing that and maybe there's a day you can sneak in a meal because you're going to bed later on Friday night. So it's basically only Monday through Thursday. Friday night, maybe you can sneak in a, a little bit bigger of a meal because you can sleep in on Saturday and so forth. So that's an option. The other thing is to um, space out multiple meals in your day. Now, I'm not saying I'm a nutritionist, but these are the ways that I would approach it with my athletes where I would say, okay, let's take a look at this and see how we need to get in the calories over a 24-hour period or in that window of, let's say, 5-ish p.m., 4-ish p.m. because you're planning for your evening workout until you go to bed 
10 p.m. or even factor in breakfast. It's all about strategically placing the calories so that it works for you, but you're still getting in your 24-hour total. Your body works remarkably well when you still get in the totals that you need. So that's probably the math that I would go do, and we would test it in different ways, see how a meal at three works, and a meal, a bigger breakfast works, and seeing how the energy levels and how we still sleep off of that and go from there. But those are probably the two options that I would take, taking on the European meal option or taking on the how am I getting the total amount of calories I need in a 24, 18-hour window, let's say, um, because of sleep, um, and what is it, what's working best from an energy level and an effective recovery, um, training, and best type of workout schedule in order to have that outcome. So I hope that helps. And finally, I brought up something in the earlier topic that I wanted to touch on a little bit more, and that is what I call the cocoon of our sport. I purposely don't coach um, by reading any type of industry literature, pay attention to any industry websites, um, read any blogs or anything like that. And I actually try to stay away from reading anything about ultra-endurance sports in that respect. Um, trade publications, let's say, running Runner's World, Trail Runner, uh, Triathlete Magazine, um, you know, master swimming magazines, things like that. Um, in general, I stay away from all that. I don't know who the current top pros are in the sport of triathlon. I don't know who the top pros are in the sport of trail running. I don't know who the better athletes are in the ultra endurance world, nor do I really find that I need it in order to do my coaching. Because quite simply, the concepts are exactly the same as they were 15, 20 years ago. Now, I do pay attention to some of the latest exercise physiology research on a bigger picture and a bigger spectrum with regards to um, what's being published, what's being researched, what's being expanded upon. But overall, what the industry itself, what the sports here in this case are doing themselves, I quite honestly could care less. And I know that sounds a little bit um, uh, full of myself, but I don't want to be in that silo, in that bubble of confirming or watching what other coaches do and then trying to modify my training or change the latest trends or so forth. And more and more it's coming out and more and more research is showing and more and more scientists and exercise physiologists and former athletes and so forth are coming across the exact same concepts um, I've been preaching as well as I've been reading about whether the Phil Maffetone, Phil Maffetones of the world, even Scott Molina back in the day, uh, Mark Allens and so forth, that you know, the training is the training. It's not changing. Um, even the pros to this day in the cycling world and the running world and so forth, they're still spending 80% of their time in zone two or what we would want to call below zone uh, aerobic threshold. And about 15% of approximately of their time above 
anaerobic threshold. It is what it is. <laughs> and nothing has really changed about that. And that space in between the gray zone, they all know to stay away from it. And yeah, Nordic skiers and across the board, it's showing more and more that they're doing the exact same and they've always been doing it like that. And it's the accumulation of miles and the time and the foundation and the base work and the building the platform and so forth. It is all still there. And if anything, the industry, the trade publications, and many coaches that claim they have a better way are complicating things. They're complicating the methodology. They're complicating the training and actually selling you a hoax, some snake oil, because in that respect, the body needs what it needs. And that is whether the volume or the intensity at the right time, staying away from the gray zone, determining those effectively, paying attention to recovery. And the more complex it is, the more it's um, getting away from the fundamentals we all need for ultra endurance work. And again, I'm, I'm still living in that world myself and I'm still looking to improve. I'm not done yet for myself yet, still having a fast Ironman here or there. And with that, I'm talking, you know, sub nine um, or having a fast um, trail run, uh, 100 mile run or 50 mile run here or there, or having a fast open water swim or swim run, whatever it is here or there, or multi-day stage race adventure at the front of the field, all those things. So I'm with you on that um, on that train, right? And so be careful. The more complex it is, the more an, a coach or a, an approach or a book is trying to sell you something to make it exclusive to them, to justify their unique approach, which overall, I doubt, nets you the results and the long-term growth and health. Keep in mind health. Um, long-term that you may be looking for. The big thing here is, right, is the better prepared you are, the bigger the volume you create, the bigger the foundation you lay, the more injury-free you stay, the healthier you remain over the long-term in order to um, maintain a good foundation and fitness. And also, the more you train consistently, and stay injury-free, therefore allowing you to stay consistent, the more you can balance the other things in your life, the more you can balance family and career, because that one workout won't change much of anything because you have the long-term trend in mind. That specific interval workout that you might miss because life gets in the way or work gets in the way, that's fine. It can be done another day because you're healthy and you're recovered. And again, you're just looking for the overall trends of consistency, the overall growth of the macro cycle of your training. And, you know, it's all about, like we said to the start of this podcast, maximizing the limited time you have available to train, keeping you healthy, keeping you recovered, keeping you motivated because you're energetic, excited, see the progress and want to train. It's not a chore to train and continuing to go from there. So that is why I have no interest in 
going down the rabbit hole, for lack of a better description, of what other coaches are doing or what the industry is doing or the latest trend of high intensity or, you know, eating fat only diet and this and all that. Sure, that's all good and great. But what's been working for the last 20, 30, 40 years in ultra endurance athletics and the explosive growth of it and the growth of performances and results. I mean, just watching those Western states times come down, all that, it's still based on the exact same principles as before. And of course, there's outliers that do things differently. But the mean of the bell curve, the biggest group and how they work is all still on the fundamentals of what we talk about so often here. And so keep that in mind. Take it um, with a grain of salt and take a deep breath and keep it simple. Keep it simple. Consistent training to build outstanding fitness over time so that you can take on any adventure that your heart desires that you've been yearning to do because you've taken the long-term trend of building a great endurance, ultra-endurance body, mind, and spirit. And with that, a support network of family and a solid work-life balance that allows you to juggle it all in a healthy manner, not in a stressed manner. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And I can't wait till the next podcast to continue to share insights, stories, as well as learning and growth and balance with regards to this ultra endurance world and maximizing us, all of us and our limited time and our growth and keeping us injury free. And as we always say, in order to be better tomorrow than we were today and better today than we were yesterday, because guess what? That means we're trending in the right direction and the results will come from that. Guaranteed, if you get better every single day than you were the day before, or overall this week, you trended better than last week, you are only going to improve. And it's not going to be set on numbers. It's not going to be set on paces, but it's going to be set on being fitter, stronger, more grounded, more balanced, more injury-free, more joyful, more satisfied with your growth and training and your lifestyle and your health. All right. Thank you.